I'm Tom Tweed, um, AAR president. Although I'm happy to be here and delighted to be with my colleagues, I should say I'm, I'm sad. Uh, like the rest of you, I've been grief-stricken by the heartbreaking violence on the streets during the past year and a half and dispirited about the present and the future. We must do better. That's all I know for sure. Maybe the doing better starts small, even this small, one panel devoted to racial injustice. What we want to do today is just talk and leave better prepared to enact our deepest values. I'll introduce my colleagues in a minute and then exit. But a friend said I should start by saying why this is so important to me personally and why I organized the session. I don't want to do that because I don't want to do the usual scholarly things, theoretical reflection, social analysis, or historical narrative. I don't want to posture or pose. I want to avoid what Du Bois called elegant and elaborate condescension. I don't want to begin by demonstrating I'm a good white person. There are no good people while violence and injustice remains. So what to do? Maybe just a few true words about why I'm sad. As a middle schooler watching a small black and white TV alone, I wept when I heard Dr. King talk about his dream, and I wept later when he was shot. I don't know why I cried either time, or if I was supposed to cry or allowed to cry. I just did. I've cried since, doing my historical work, as when I read a gruesomely casual newspaper story about a lynching in turn-of-the-century Miami, he got a necktie. That's what the headline said. I wept when President Obama was elected, a mix of sad tears and happy tears, and last May I wept when Baltimore State Prosecutor said there'd be charges in the case of Freddie Gray. I wept for all sorts of reasons, I guess, but this is what comes to mind. When I walked into a department store as a teen, the security guards didn't follow me. When I ask white people on the street for directions, they assume I'm lost. If I hail a cab, the driver stops. When I was 16, Philadelphia police put me in the back of a van because with my long hair and torn jeans, they said I looked like someone who had committed a crime. It wasn't tea with the queen, but they didn't kill me. I'd grown up in a racially segregated and violent city of brotherly love, where I was taught to love everyone, but some people a little more than others. I guess the tears come from this. I came to believe I should love everybody just the same, and so should everyone else. Our panelists think so too, and as you already know, it's a distinguished panel. Let me introduce them. Amani Perry, who will moderate the conversation, is the Hughes Rogers Professor of American Studies at Princeton University. She's the author of two books, More Beautiful and More Terrible, The Embrace and Transcendence of Racial Inequality in the United States, and Prophets of the Hood, Politics and Poetics in Hip-Hop. She's also the editor of the Barnes & Noble Classics edition of The Narrative of Sojourner Truth, and the author of many scholarly articles, 
in the fields of law and literary and cultural studies. Like our other panelists, Professor Perry is also a public intellectual. In addition to providing radio and television commentary, Professor Perry's written books, book reviews for the New York Times, the San Francisco Chronicle, the London School of Economics book review blog. Ruby Sales, who lives and works in Atlanta, is a public theologian, historian, archivist, preacher, and educator. She first answered the call to social justice at Tuskegee Institute, where she joined the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and worked on voter registration in Alabama during the Civil Rights era. She received a BA degree from Manhattanville College and a Master's of Divinity from the Episcopal Divinity School. There she developed a reputation as a preacher and since then has preached at churches across the nation. After Divinity School, she founded and still directs a nonprofit organization, the Spirit House Project. A co-founder of Sage Magazine, a scholarly journal on black women, Ruby Sales also has published in journals, newspapers, and magazines, and is a frequent guest on radio. Sales has received numerous awards and honors, including an honorary doctorate. She was selected as a history maker and veteran of hope and inducted into Morehouse College's Martin Luther King Jr. Board of Preachers. Ruby Sales' work as a social justice activist has been praised in books, articles, and films like Broken Ground, a film on race relations in the South. To keep alive her memories of the movement and oral history of her is housed in the Library of Congress. Finally, Cornell West is a prominent and provocative public intellectual. He's professor of philosophy and Christian practice at Union Theological Seminary and professor emeritus at Princeton University. He also taught at Yale, Harvard, and the University of Paris. Professor West graduated magna cum laude from Harvard in three years and obtained his MA and PhD in philosophy at Princeton. He's written over 20 books and edited 13. Though he's best known for his classics, Race Matters and Democracy Matters, and for his memoir, Brother West, his most recent releases, Black Prophetic Fire, Radical King, have received critical acclaim. He's a frequent guest on The Bill Maher Show, CNN, C-SPAN, and Democracy Now. He made his film de debut in The Matrix and was the commentator on the official trilogy in 2004. He's also appeared in over 25 documentaries and films, including The Examined Life, Call and Response, Sidewalk and Stand. Extending his work into other arenas of the arts and popular culture, he's made three spoken word albums, including Never Forget, collaborating with Prince. And his spoken word interludes were featured on Terence Blanchard's Choices, an award-winning 2009 jazz album and most recently on Bootsy Collins' The Funk Capital of the World. Professor West has said that he sees all his work in the public arena, as with his scholarship, as a way to keep alive the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., a, leg a legacy of telling the truth and bearing witness to love and justice. In this panel discussion, we'll try to keep alive that legacy of truth-telling as our colleagues think more about racial injustice and religious response from Selma to Ferguson. With that, I'll turn things over to Professor Perry, Perry, who will moderate the discussion. Amani.
Thank you, Tom, for that beautiful introduction and for convening um, uh, us as a group. I, um, this is my first AAR, and it is uh, uh, such an honor to be able to participate in this way. Um, so let's, we don't have that much time, so let's get right into it. Um, and I wanted to open the discussion um, with this question um, about uh, black religion and the black church and their historic role um, in what we might term the freedom movement, whether we're talking about the way that gets bracketed as sort of the 60s to 70s movement or um, with a longer trajectory. I mean, um, can, can you talk, can you begin, Ruby, by talking about that, um, that, that legacy? Well, I think that in talking about the legacy, it's important to draw a fine distinction between the black church and black religion. It is particularly important to draw that distinction when you talk about the black folk religion that grew up in the bush harbors during enslavement. And when you talk about the movement in the church, it probably began in the north in the what I call the black freedom movement, which I make a clear distinction between that and the abolitionist movement. But as I think about, so I think that when we talk about movement, I want to talk about the black, I want to talk about black religion because I think it was black religion that brought us to Selma and Montgomery. It was in the fields of the plantation under the bush harbors that African Americans created, first of all, they turned the field, which was created by the enslavers to be sites of terror, sites of death, sites where black people would be objects and properties. And black people turned those, that site into a site of resistance, into something that would later on become the black church, sites of transformation. Also, in that site, the, the runaway slave movement began. And I want to just talk about that as a movement because it was more than just one individual deciding to run away. It was a community assisting in the process of liberation. So it was the community in action. It was also in the Bush Harbor that black people began to develop a centralized theme in black religion that would become a part of a theme in the Southern Freedom Movement that was agape. I love everybody, I love everybody. You can't make me hate you, you can't make me hate you. Also in black religion, in the fields of the South, black folk religion, black people began to blend a vision of democracy with theology. I've got a right, you've got a right, I've got a right to the tree of life. Notice that right, the word right. Also in black religion, it was a democratized space where everyone had the opportunity to participate and everyone had the opportunity to have access to the microphone. So it was, it was a democratized space. It was not hierarchical. Also within black religion, 
I wanted to just say something quickly. Let me digress for a moment. I do, don't want to undermine the role of the black church because I think the black church was a very important common space mm-hmm. where black people, community space, where black people came together and concretized the rituals, the songs, the prayers into a liturgy that was important in terms of memory, was important in terms of intimacy because oppression always seeks to destroy intimacy. The black church recreated that intimacy between generations. It created that intimacy in terms of helping us remember where it is we had come from in the cultural resources and spiritual tools that we had gathered, that we had created collectively on that journey. However, I think we have to really take a harder look at history. The black movement, the Southern Freedom Movement, as did the runaway slave movement, began in the fields of black America. The site of resistance was the street, the buses in Montgomery. None of the people who started the boycott were church people. They did not go to church. E.D. Nixon was an organizer who was not a church person. Plantations in Mississippi that bred Fannie Lou Hamer, that was not the black church. What the black church provided, once again, was community. It provided an opportunity for us to draw on the cultural resources as a community that we had developed during enslavement. But it was the black religion was both dynamic and elastic. And it, it, you, could be, you could adjust it and reinvent it the way we did during the Southern Freedom Movement. We used the songs in a very different kind of way, but nonetheless, the same songs. So I think that we really have to debunk the notion that black preachers were at the heart of the, black mo- of the Southern Freedom Movement. Now, SCLC had black preachers, but you had SNCC, you had CORE, you had local people, you had the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. None of those parties were church parties. As a matter of fact, I would go out on the limb and say less than 1% of black preachers participated in the Southern Freedom Movement. I will say that it was black congregations, ordinary people, who participated and did the most extraordinary thing of bringing down an empire without firing a shot. Mm. Mm. Yes. Um, I really appreciate this distinction between black religion and the black church that you've drawn and between black congregations and black preachers. And I'm wondering, Cornell, if you could Mm. talk about perhaps um, why we need why those distinctions are important given um, both, the, both the beautiful but also the vexing and complicated role of the black church in various times and places in the freedom movement. Yes, yes. Thank you so much, Imani uh, Perry. What a magnificent intellectual you are. And just to sit next to Ruby Salsey, for me, she is black spiritual nobility and democratic royalty of the highest level. Yes. So I just want to be honest and candid about that. Just sitting next to Absolutely. Thank you, Brother Tom, for bringing us together and your lovely family we met earlier. 
But uh, see, for me, Gayward Wilmore and others taught us a long time ago that you can never confine black creativity and black genius to one institution. And therefore, the institutional expression of certain kinds of religious practices certainly uh, uh, can be talked about in terms of the church and, of course, mosque and synagogue as well. Uh, but black religion, Ruby Sells, is absolutely right. It has to do with the crevices and interstices of everyday life of black people. And I think we have to be very candid about this as well, that you see black religion and the black church, they constitute anti-terrorist movements in America. Counter-terrorist movements in America. The physical terrorism, the psychic terrorism, the spiritual terrorism was not just segregation, dehumanization, those nice little deodorized categories. But you're actually talking about vicious, visceral attacks on people's humanity at the deepest level. And the black church responded to that terrorism by not saying we're going to terrorize other people the way ISIS and others folk, but said, no, we want liberty for everybody. That's Frederick Douglass, that's Harriet Tubman. And the same is true with Ida B. Wells in Chicago. Uh, in the urban context, so that there's uh, black religion and black church is probably the greatest gift to American democracy because Amen. the black people that chose to terrorize folk who had been terrorizing them, uh, ISIS would be less new news in the U.S. context. 9-11 would be less new news. There'd been civil strife and civil war every generation. There's something about being a hated people, a haunted people, a hunted people, and still dishing out the love warriors like the Sojourner Truths and the Martin Luther Kings and so many others, the Fannie Lou Hamers and the Ruby Sales, you see. And the challenge today is, in the age of Ferguson, that our precious young folk of all colors, but especially the chocolate ones, are unchurched unmasked, unsynagogue. They're drifting, caught in the dominant forces of this society, which are market forces, which go all, take us all the way back to Plato with Brasimachus. Might makes right, power with no compassion, strength with no sensitivity, and that makes the great Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel right when he said 1965 at Union, Seminary in that magnificent lecture of his No Religion is an Island, he said the major ecumenical movement of our time is nihilism. And the question becomes, what is the response to nihilism? What is the response to Thrasymachus? What's the response of the Grand Inquisitors of our day? What is the response of the Eichmanns of our day? And that's very much what we're living right now, be it in the Middle East, be it in Paris or be it in Ferguson or Baltimore. And there's a sense in which if we don't learn a lesson from the genius, the courage, and the vision of these black peoples in the middle of a beast called white supremacist, America, slavery, Jim Crow Sr. and Jim Crow Jr., what went into the makings of their character, a quest toward integrity and honesty and decency such that they still opted for love and justice rather than hatred and revenge in a moment in which we live where we're dealing with the nihilistic forces that seem to be overwhelming each and every one of us. I, I just want to pick up on this whole theme of nihilism because one of the, what we are facing 
is that we live in a capitalist technocracy where only a few lives are essential. We're living in a society where a, an age of disposability. And when that is disposability is packaged in terms of systemic white supremacy, it really does raise the question that Du Bois raised. It seems to me that the problem in, of the 21st century, not the 20th century, is the color line. And that's what we see manifested today with this call to close the gates of America, this anti-Muslim frenzy in the society because there are 208.5 billion Muslims in this country and 85% of them are colored. So implicit in that call is a racist call, mm -hmm. a call to whiten America because we know that they're not talking about not having Jews come into the country. We, we, we're not sure what they mean about Buddhists, but we understand the implications of that call. And one of the critical issues that black people face is the question of genocide, which was raised in 1947 by Ossie Davis and William Patterson. From the time black people have come into this country, we have been considered unessential to the American pro uh, democracy project. So one of the things that, so what the movement did, the, the religion did, is that it created an alternative narrative for African Americans in this country, an alternative theology to empire theology. What the, our folk theology said, I might be a slave, but what? I'm somebody. I might not have this, but I'm somebody. And then it offered a very, very bitter critique of empire. Everybody talking about heaven, what? Ain't going there, heaven. A bitter critique, I've got shoes. The assertion of one's right and one's humanity in the face of a society that says that we're irrelevant. So we're up against that in an accelerated way where the numbers get even smaller in a capitalist technocracy. And one of the things about black religion that I think is very important, I'll give you an antidote. When we were in Lowndes County, we didn't oftentimes agree with Dr. King, and we called him D. Lloyd. So it was Stokely Carmichael, Julian Bond, <laughs> Janet Moses, yeah. Ruby Sells, and Bob Mance. So Dr. King was coming that night to preach. We were like in our 20s, like the Black Lives Matter folk are today. We didn't go to church. <laughs> we didn't want to have nothing to do with that because we thought black people stayed on their knees too long <laughs> and too much. And, we, and every time we had a mass meeting, somebody had to pray. And we would think, my God, can these people ever do anything without praying? <laughs> and so what happened is Dr. King came, and we said, they can jump up like fools, but we're not going to do that. But I tell you, when he got up and started preaching, we were stoked all of us, we were on our knees. <laughs> when he said, a, a shelter in a raging storm, a lily of the valley, a bright and morning star, a way out of no way, he was telling the story of black history. So we didn't have church in us, but we had the history and the religion in us. And, that, and so, therefore, that's what made Dr. King a powerful witness and a powerful leader because he spoke in the language and symbols that were accessible to ordinary people. 
as a nine-year-old girl, I knew what he meant. When he, I didn't exactly know what it meant, but I could repeat it as a litany, a rose in a, a Sharon, you know. I could do those things, and that's what made him powerful, mm. not because he got a Ph.D. from Boston University. That's okay. right. That's right. And I think it had something to do with the musicality of Brother Martin's language. It's the very way in which he preached that itself was a species of the struggle of a people. Yes. And so I remember sitting next to Stokely at the great James Baldwin's uh, funeral in December 1987 with tears flowing when James Baldwin sang a cappello, Precious Lord, Take My Hand. And it was clear that we know that Brother Stokely didn't have a cognitive commitment to God talk. But it touched him at the deepest level because collective memory and ancestor appreciation and what constitutes the people at the how and the style, not just the that and the substance. And the same is true with the musicians. The same is yes. true with the, with the, with the blues. With the blues, yes, absolutely. 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 So let me ask y'all then about sort of both continuities and ruptures mm. between past and present because uh, it strikes me that, that much of what you're describing, um, both in terms of um, the kind of institutional forms, community forms, right, ways of being and doing um, that were necessary, um, that became ways of, 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 of protecting and resisting against the terror um, are, if not absent, um, greatly diminished for young black people. And at the mm. same time, we see this uh, reinvigoration, <laughs> we see this reinvigoration of, of organizing that's happened over the past year and a half. We saw it in, you know, in Ferguson, in Baltimore, and now this, in, this is extraordinary outpouring of organizing on college campuses. Um, and I'm wondering to what extent is this, is this a continuation of the freedom movement? To what extent do, do the ruptures though between the conditions of black life past and present and not just, I mean on the one hand, the socioeconomic conditions, the market conditions, the, uh, but also uh, social fabric as a set of conditions. Um, does that make this something entirely different or if not, to what extent, what are the, what are the, what are the distinctive challenges of doing that work in this moment? Yeah, I think in our present historical moment, there's certainly discontinuities to the degree to which too many of our young people are unloved and uncared for. Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood that was broke as the Ten Commandments financially, but it was not a hood because we had rich spirituality. We had a love that flowed. We had ties of empathy and bonds of sympathy, whereas too many of our precious young folk, when I say our, oh, I'm talking about Americans, though we're talking about black folk for the most part, but you got hoods in vanilla suburbs, but that's another seminar. Right. Uh, but the, uh, uh, but the, the kind of hoods we're talking about are ones in which they have to muster levels of courage that I didn't have to muster. Because right. I had some things transmitted to me at Shiloh Baptist Church that continue to overflow. Take three lifetimes to exhaust the love that I received in that church, you see. Whereas so many of the young folk themselves are unloved. I've taught in prisons for 37 years. I've seen it with my own eyes every year. So what does that mean? Well, Ferguson, they've broken the back of fear, and that's always a crucial thing. Once you break the back of fear and straighten, and, and straighten your back up, you're ready to fight. You're in a warrior position. And we got a whole lot of warriors that are now waking up 
and becoming critics of the status quo rather than turning on each other in the socially neglected, economically abandoned hoods in American empire. But most importantly, I think, is in the, it, it, it's, it's, it's for me, uh, will they channel their rage through the love and justice, which is the best of the tradition that produced us? Or will they channel it through hatred and revenge? That is very much an open question, very much an open question. And I can say this, I don't think that we, most of, of us who are older have provided good sources of inspiration for them. Right. I really don't. I, 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 I see uh, in the 1960s so many of the love warriors were assassinated or incorporated. When I look at the sister Ruby, I see her as one of the grand survivors, but most of our Black folk in the 60s have become so incorporated that they're polished professionals rather than love warriors. And to be a polished professional means you're part of a culture of conformity and you no longer exemplify a courage that they are looking for. Because we all know the universities are not sites that in encourage courage to fight. They're sites for smartness and dollars and struggles over assets of status and power. That's what they see. And that's not a model for a movement of freedom. That's a model for achievement in a status quo where you end up well-adjusted to injustice, even as you're a polished professional. Let me just add a couple of things to that, to that very astute analysis. It's very important to understand what was the white response, systemic response, to the gains of popular movements of the 60s and 70s. Whereas during segregation or Southern apartheid, containment meant segregating one in a locality, a location. What they realized is that in those, in those spaces that were meant for containment and means of surveillance, they were sites of, they were subversive sites that created a generation of freedom fighters. It was in those contained segregated communities that you had the movement being born and executed. And so one of the things that white people did as they did after black reconstruction is to begin to reconsider how might they stabilize white supremacist power that had been destabilized by these movements. And one of the things, and so young people today face a different set of realities than what we did then. First of all, they are victims of gentrification and dispersion. They are victims of desegregation in white schools where 85% of the teachers are, are, are white, and rarely in their growing up years in school do they come across a black teacher. Schools are not, as Vanelle Sill Walker says in her book, Their Highest Capacity, schools are not places anymore for black students that encourage them to reach their highest capacity. Even before they get there, they're perceived as being culturally deprived and, de and, and having deficits. Whereas we understood that we might not have the, the best kind of books, but our minds were not under-resourced. And so that's really important. So they are facing 
of fragmentation in the black community that has really disrupted history and generational continuity. They also are dealing with a lack of intimacy given the nature of work and that has gone, that, that's going on. So they're dealing with a lack of intimacy. They're also dealing with the, a, a disposability that we can't imagine. Because one of the responses to the black youth movement of the 60s was to make sure that black students would never be able to rise to the point of doing a movement again. And so you began to privatize education. You began to destroy all of the strongholds that created a Joyce Ladner, that created a Dory Ladner, that created a Clara Mall out of Lowndes County. These young people do not, they are dangling, as you would call, they do not have the, the foundational undergirding that we had. So they're forced to deal with the movement in an era of fragmentation and non-intimacy. In addition to that, they, they, no, rarely has anyone laid hands on them. A black, rarely has a black adult laid hands on them. One of the frightening things for me in Ferguson was to realize that young black people who are doing movement, many of them do them from the back of their cars because they don't have places to stay. Spirit House has to feed them all the time. We have to, we're a small organization and I have to really give my money away to make sure they have a stipend so that they can get through Emory or so that they can get through other places where they're trying to study, to offer them free room and board. What they are most upset about is how can black adults, how could they have thrown us into a den of people, as Toni Morrison says, who out there don't love us? That's their question. They feel abandoned. Mm. And we have to admit that we did abandon them because we misunderstood the nature of movement. The purpose of movement was not to become like the very people we were trying to re change or redeem. It was, to, it was to create a beloved community okay. in a new world. Okay. And so that this time we walked in, back into the empire without change. Nobody forced us. We went back in there because we allowed people to tell us that the movement, to materialize the movement, which movement in itself is a spiritual call to rearrange one's relationship with God, each other, and all aspects of humanity. But what do we think the movement meant? Jobs, degrees, cars. That was the promised land for us. But that's not what we had meant for the promised land. And so in, 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 in following that false dream, we abandoned our children. So it, sometimes it's a wonder to me that they have any collective memory enough that still, where the impulse of freedom still abides within them. Um, 
If we add another, I want to add another layer to our discussion of this moment, which is um, that we live in the digital age and that the primary, maybe not primary, but a primary mode of connection for young people, irrespective of circumstance really, is digital communication. Um, and we see the role of social media uh, in more recent forms of, of organizing and, and distributing information and establishing connections. Um, and I, I, I um, and I think, and I, you know, I think we have to think about that in a complicated mm -hmm. uh, way. There are things that are that are very useful about it. There's also dangers attached to it. And one of the the dangers, I think, um, it goes back to something we discussed earlier, which has to do with um, the rise of of of, of, of uh, charismatic figures who are deemed representative of mm -hmm. of, of organ and. And, and the manner in which perhaps while the kind of um, model of a kind of patriarchal leader in the form of a preacher has been uh, roundly critiqued, particularly in academia, right, as the source of all, um, the primary source of, of, of the movement, that perhaps now part of what we're seeing, though, is a different emergence of a discourse or an image of a charismatic leader or leaders um, that is, but in this instance, not necessarily um, tied even to community period in that way, but, but, but picked up on corporate platforms. I mean, even social media, those are corporate platforms, but also their, their status circulated by other media corporations. Um, and, and I don't say that as a critique of those individuals, but rather um, sort of raising a question for you all in terms of how then do we, how do we think about um, uh, nurturing, uh, organizing, nurturing this period in the freedom movement given those forces being present, um, always ready to co-opt, always ready to sweep yes. down, swoop mm -hmm. down on, 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 on what young folks are doing, always ready to pluck one out or mm -hmm. three out. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think any any uh, historical moment has possibilities of critique and resistance as well as incorporation and extension of structures of domination. Though I think our moment is much darker mm -hmm. than many of us are willing to admit. Yes. And it's partly because of the market structures of feeling and market structures of value that make it much more difficult for persons to really want to opt for integrity, honesty, and decency. I mean, I would go as far as to say people who are really addicted to integrity, honesty, and de decency are profoundly countercultural. I don't care what color you are, uh, because we live in a society, Brother Martin used to say, obsessed with the 11th commandment, thou shalt not get caught. It's just a matter of getting over, getting over, getting over, making it, making it, the way Brother Norman Potthorst put it in the 60s. And it's all about status money. And young people understand that Absolutely. very much. Why we've, we've seen a massive transfer of wealth from poor and working people to the well-to-do. Forty years ago, 1% of the population owned 19% of the wealth. Today, they own 42% of the wealth and increasing. So that means in the level of social neglect and economic abandon is, is completely invisible for most people in the professional managerial classes. And most people in their upper middle class, you don't see it other than on TV. And the digital revolution that takes place is still under the aegis of capital. So the same human beings will be using it. 
the same human beings who need the kind of spiritual transformation and moral awakening will be using it. And then, in addition to that, there is the, uh, the problem of just spectatorial status in the cultural superficial spectacle. So you're more and more a spectator even when you're involved in the, in the digital technology. And movements can't survive based on lack of love, courage, vision, or participation. Now, you can use the hashtags in order to right. convince persons to get, to get out and become, but some, some movements are just hashtags. That's not a movement. That's a hashtag. <laughs> right. They may pat you on the back, you know, Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN, but that doesn't make you a movement. That means you're patted on the back by corporate media. Right. That's what Absolutely. that is. That's not SNCC. That's not Black Panther Party. That's not prophetic churches and so right. forth. You know, and that's not the voices of, 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 of James Cones and Katie Cannons and Preston Williams and others. They hands-on. They were hands-on folk. That makes the difference. And that's very much what we need to continue to ask. You, you just hit a very important point. Because I think it's important for people to understand that when you are becoming a part of a movement yeah. and when you organize someone to be a part of a movement, you're asking them to place their lives, right. place the lives of their family. You're asking them to give up something. They might be kicked out of their homes that they don't own. They might lose their jobs. You can't do that. On, that there's no accountability on social media. You have organizing and movement building is eye to eye relationship. Movement is the most intimate space that you can be with somebody because you might get killed. And you have to trust each other in a very different kind of way. You, you deepen your understanding of trust in movement. You deepen your understanding of community in movement. You engage in a process of criticism and self-criticism. So, so, so you're inviting people into a higher state of intimacy that involves a great deal of risk but has to have a high level of accountability. And one of the things I want to say that I think was very deadly about revisionist history in terms of the locus of power and movement shifting that power from the fields, from the people, into the high priest had a very devastating impact that created that we always kind of had a cult, particularly in the North with Father Divine and people. There's always been that tendency that in, in, in black religious life, in black church history. But I think that once that happened and the representation of the movement became solely a church movement, which, by the way, eradicated young people completely, eradicated Fannie Lou Hamer completely, eradicated Anna Divine completely. There was able to be a shift away from liberative gospel to prosperity gospel. Once you took the power out of the people, the voices out of the people, the call and response out of the hands of the people, you began to develop what I call a new hierarchy in the church that we had never seen before. Now, black religion, if we are honest, has always had a strand of materialism in it. We've always had that part 
that, that, that trajectory in our community. I, I'm probably going to tell my age, that song that we used to sing, I want money, money, if, if what money can't buy, I don't want. That was a negative strand in, in black thought, to place money higher than anything else. But I think what black, the black church did in black religion is that it provided a balance. I think that one of the tools of oppression that we're dealing with with social media, because I think it can be good, but yeah, basically exactly. what we're dealing with is a loss of in, a further loss of intimacy, which is mm -hmm. for everybody, mm -hmm. but it's compounded when you are people whose backs, is, as Howard Thurman says, are pushed up against the wall. You are further, it's further problematic not to be community, to try to be individuals. So, in, in, so you're dealing with fragmentation, dismemory, and the inability to be in community with each other. So I think, I think that although it appears that this is a radical way of organizing, I sometimes worry about it because young people today, if they want to date someone, they don't call the person up. That person can, they don't walk over to the person. She can be sitting across the room and they'll text and say, can you go out with me? So, so I think we've got to offer uh, an analysis that talks about the spiritual implications of technocracy mm. and, the, and the diminishing of intimacy, relationality, because in technology, the icon is God. There's something subliminal about calling something that you push an icon. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've got to really begin to think about these issues and deepen, as Vincent Harding would say, our theological reflection about the age that we're living in today. And finally, I want to say in terms of young people, they didn't make themselves. We did. We made them. They are the product of both our strengths and our growing edges. Absolutely. Absolutely. I am. Um, I think at this, this is a good time to invite some questions uh, from the audience. I'm, I'm going to ask people to be brief so that we can um, really delve into the questions. There's a microphone right here in the center of the room. Please. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. It's good to see you all. Uh, Karen Jackson Weaver, Harvard University. I want to thank you for the brilliant, prolific, and prophetic words that you had this afternoon. It was, it was, it was upsetting and refreshing at the same time, and I, I'm framing it that way because of the question that I have. I'm thinking about the event that just took place on Princeton's campus, the recent sit-in yes, at yes. Nassau Hall. I'm thinking about Harvard's campus and the recent event with the faculty members, African-American faculty who had black tape put across their faces, which is now being investigated as a hate crime. And I'm wondering if you all can help us make sense as theologians and scholars to try to figure out how do we leverage the gifts of black religion and the black church and how do we respond to these instances of hatred, terrorism, and, and really, uh, a dehumanization process that's taking place on many of our campuses across the country. Mm. Yeah, so good to see you, Sister good Karen, Dr. Weaver. Absolutely. We miss you at Princeton, but Harvard is blessed. <laughs> uh, 
I think what you're saying is so crucial. I think on the one hand, we know that every 28 hours is some black or brown person shot by a police from a security guard. Mm -hmm. So that's part of a continuum of the vicious legacy of white supremacy that's yes. operating. When it touches professional managerial sites, uh, it's part of the overflow. It's already yes. at work on the yes. ground among so many poor and working class, black and brown and red and yes. yellow communities. But it's simply an acknowledgement of the degree to which in our present capitalist civilization that's yearning for more democratic possibilities. Now, I'm not just talking about Brother Bernie, but we can talk about a variety of possibilities that are seemingly distant, though maybe not as distant as we think, that xenophobic mm -hmm. voices and xenophobic sensibilities surface with tremendous potency. I'm told all the time there's 784 white supremacist militia groups with many of our names on it. That's part of America, too. It's not all of America, thank God. But that's part of America, too. So it overflows in the Harvard Law and overflows. The beautiful thing is the students at Princeton and University of Missouri and Ithaca mm -hmm. College and Yale, that they're standing up and they're hungry and thirsty for something bigger than just their egos and their and the narcissistic sensibilities that bombard them every day with corporate media. But the problem is, will they be mature enough spiritually? Mm -hmm. Will they be developed enough morally to connect them with the best of what's gone into them, the best of their ancestors? He said, not just black, the Dorothy Days and the Daniel Barrigans yeah. and, and others who, who are part of the love train in, 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 in American history for everybody. And that to me is, 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 is what is at work among the students. That's why we spend the time with the, the students at, at, at Princeton. They're taking over the president's office and uh, I think it's going to increase because the hysteria is intensifying but so yes. is the right wing. Mm -hmm. And you know the police state and fascist possibilities are still very real, real in a moment in which we live with possible uh, fascist, fascist attacks like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And so how do you deal with that? I mean, I, and so I, it's, it's, a real, it's a real challenge. I mean, for me, one of the important things of trying to take seriously the legacy of Martin in our larger context is trying to accent just how precious Muslim and Arabs' lives are. Because there's been two million of them who's been killed by U.S. invasion right. and occupations in 15 years, and they got mamas and daddies and cousins. See, that's the imperial side of the thing. But then you get the fascist response with ISIS and so forth, you see, in which it complicates it. How do you be anti-imperialist and anti-fascist at the same time? You have to if you're a principled person, you see. But, what, but black folk have been wrestling with this. We've been dealing with the fascist face of America, and yet we still wanted to hold on to love and justice and integrity. And yet how do we protect our loved ones, including Harvard Law professors, including students at Princeton, including the poor brothers and sisters in, in Ferguson, dealing with uh, massive unemployment and underemployment, decrepit schools and indecent housing and so on. But, I, but on one hand, I just call it the new marvelous militancy among the young. I, I love to see sleepwalking Me? shattered. Mm. You mm. see, I mean, that's, that's, that's Henry David Thoreau. What can I do to awaken my fellow citizens from their sleepwalking? That's a beautiful thing, but then what direction will it take? Just quickly to add on to that, I think one of the things that happened, the hypnotic response 
to movements of the 60s and 70s was the whole belief in a post-racial American that we had reached a utopia. And that this hypnosis not only affects students, it also affects professors who shroud their worth in, in their doctors and reverends. And, and I think that I, I know I take a risk at calling it out because I'm calling out some of my friends whom I love dearly. But I think we've got to really begin to understand that the significance of this movement is that it cracks the wall in this sense of exceptionality so that we all understand what it means to be black in America. And it begins to bring back together that fragmentation that, was a, that has been a profound tool of oppression. Hopefully we will see the development of a new kind of intelligentsia mm -hmm. that, 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 that roots its function to the liberation of the people, that's, that understands that, in, in, that intellectual thought must be functional. It's not simply thought for the sake of thinking. Yes. Mm -hmm. It has to be functional mm -hmm. in addition. So I, what I'd like to ask, I think it's a great opportunity for the African-American community and a great opportunity for these young people because I've met too many young people who think that they're the exceptional Negro. And I've met too many uh, professors and practitioners who think that they're the exceptional Negro. Now we are all dealing with the Malcolm X moment. What do they call all of us? Nigger. Good afternoon. My name is Travis Harris. I'm a PhD student at the College of William Mary. And I'm actually doing local organizing in my community. And I'm working with a family now of, unfortunately, another young African-American male who was shot by the police. Mm. And in this situation, we actually went to a town hall that was organized by um, many of the local pastors in the community. And my question is this. So at the town hall, they had the police um, officers, the, the police leaders there, and the police said, you, you should be, your goal is to be, you don't want to be dead right. And that broke my heart. And then all, primarily black people, everybody in the crowd, everybody in the crowd was um, clapping. And so this was a, a local um, community, church leaders leading this. Everybody's all excited about the police officer telling them this. So I have two questions. One, how do I communicate, or what should I communicate to the family I'm working with who just heard this, who's dealing with, I mean, they're dealing with everything from the loss of their son to medical bills, et cetera, I mean, to um, funeral costs, et cetera. And then how do I work with on the local pastors who are applauding and leading police officers telling their community that you don't want to be dead right? And what he meant by that was, even if you haven't done anything wrong, Listen to, listen to the police officer because the police officer is trained to kill you. And that's what the police officer said. We do, this, is the way, this is the way that we are training, so we're just going to work out our training. So how do, what do I tell them? How do I communicate with them? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that question because but what I do want to say is that growing up in the South, black people operated from a theology and a pedagogy of, of resistance and accommodation. Mm -hmm. 
How is it that you harmoniously weave resistance and accommodation together into a praxis, into a pedagogy where you can stay alive and at the same time uh, resist oppression? So I think that there is a little bit of wisdom that you don't take on 25 police with guns drawn, that you try to figure out how to, how to get out of there alive, and then I think what happens then you resist what happened. You, you, you keep your, your head about you, you get, you get the license plate number, you do things, uh, you can text on your phone if they don't catch you and say what's going on, but I do think that we have to develop in today's world because there's no way in the world we're going to be able to just resist without any form of accommodation. That's just mm. not practical. Maybe I'm wrong, Brother no, West. No, I, I hear what you're saying. But I, I'll tell you exactly what I told the police commissioner. What did I, you tell I, him? I, Brother Bratton. And I learned it in vacation Bible school. <laughs> I told that brother that black tears and black lives have exactly the same value as the tears and the lives of the police. And that to the degree to which when our people are shot and people act as if they have no significance or meaning whatsoever, we will continue to shed tears when yours are shot, yeah. but we're going to make sure police start going to jail. And we're going to stay in the streets and we're going to go to jail until they start going to jail because the accommodation is hand in hand with the accountability. Resistance. Not a spirit of, re of revenge. We're not talking about revenge. We're talking about Resistance. people engaging in murder with impunity and immunity. That's gangsterism. And I'm against gangsterism as a Christian. You see. And so he understood what I was talking about. Yeah, I, 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 I just want to say something because Cheryl Blinkenship and I have been working on what we call state-sanctioned murder since 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we began, we read a little article in the newspaper about a young man, Billy Joe Johnson, 17 years old, Loosedale, Mississippi, 15 scholarships, football scholarships, found dead on a highway in the early morning with the deputy sheriff. And I was so fascinated by that because I couldn't understand why anybody with 17, 14 scholarships would kill themselves when he was the hope of the family. So Cheryl and I traveled down there, met his parents, and one of the, as we began to investigate that situation, this is what we discovered. Billy Joe Johnson was dating the same white girl that the deputy sheriff was dating. What we also began to understand is that like Michael Brown Billy Joe Johnson's body laid in the street for seven hours in that hot Mississippi sun, and they would not allow his parents to see his body. The only people who could see his body was the coach and the superintendent of the schools. They took Billy Joe Johnson's body to Jackson, Mississippi, did not tell the parents who uh, are not edu formerly educated people did not tell them where the body was being taken. This law firm who 
said that they were the Johnny Cochran law firm without telling the parents that Johnny Cochran had died, said that they would represent the kid. The kid's body came back. We couldn't look at his body beyond the waist. I suspect he had been castrated. Lord have mercy. And this set us on a journey. We went down to see to Chavis Carter. I don't know how m many of you remember the Chavis Carter murder, but we have been across the country, and what we've discovered is more than 2,000 African-American murders by police, unarmed African-American people, as young as six years old and as old as 97. So we are in the throes. We've all, when it has policing in black communities have always been to some degree militarized. But we are seeing an, an elevation of the militarized state, police state in this country. Right. Uh, and one of the difficult challenges that we have is that black people who sat in the black caucus in 1991 voted to have these weapons right. from the Middle East, from Iraq, to be sent to police departments around the country. Why didn't they sound the alarm and tell the black people what we were up against? That's what power is. You so we didn't know that. So one of the things that we have discovered is that black families who, who are dealing with these issues, they don't have money to hire lawyers. We don't have any lawyers anymore like the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights. They don't have money to buy the court records, the recordings, the transcripts, I mean. They barely have money to bury the family. And rarely have these families gotten help from the black church. And when we started out announcing these state-sanctioned murders, we were in, black people were in such a state of hypnosis that they said I was playing the race card. Not white people said this, but black people said that I was playing the race card. So we have allowed ourselves mm. to be, what does it mean to have to be educated and not know about gang injunctions? How many of you really mm. know about gang injunctions? That's what our children live with every day. We are living in a society where we have to come together as a community and ask the fundamental question as Martin Luther King posed, where do we go from here and what are we up against? Yeah, you can sue the police about state-sanctioned murders, but that doesn't get to the issue. It's a national crime, as Otto Wells Burnett says. You can run from Ferguson to Baltimore, but that doesn't call the question on this national issue. It fragments the call. So the question is, what do intellectuals, what do theologians, what do young people, how do we come together as a community and began to look seriously at the kinds of things that have happened in the last 40 years. I'm not sure we know that last week the Supreme Court passed a decision that said the police has a right if they feel threatened to shoot somebody in their back when they're running. Right. We, um, I think we're, we're, we're beyond time, but that's the perfect note on which to end. Where do we go from here? And I hope we take this in the rest of the session. Thank you. No, you did. No, you did.